1: Brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl
0: Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast Stories Behind the Story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Mimi Steins, welcome to Better Reading. Yay,
2: thanks for having me, Cheryl. I mean, wow, when was it that we worked together on The Circle? That was, was years ago. Ten years ago that you used to come in, do live TV <laughs> at Channel 10, yes. talk about books, and at one point I remember asking you, can we do a, a brow rating, highbrow? brow?" <laughs> Middle brow and lowbrow, and everyone looked at me and shook their heads at me. No, you no. We can't do that. <laughs> we can't
0: do that. And look at you now. Yumi has worked in Australian media for nearly two decades as a writer, radio presenter, broadcaster, and TV presenter. Her latest book, Ladies, We Need to Talk, is co-written with Claudine Ryan and is based on their hit podcast of the same name. They delve into stigmas surrounding women's health, sexuality, and relationships, I'm kind of not surprised during that game.
2: Really? Women's health and sexuality?
0: Well, and speaking your mind and speaking openly and being honest. Mm.
2: Yeah, thank you. I
0: think compliment. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because I don't think it's an easy road for people like you to be, you know, I don't know how kind television was to you and how, you know, and being a person of color myself, I feel that there are roadblocks and that we're always having to prove ourselves more so than other people.
2: Absolutely. And getting cancelled and having to rebuild from zero. I mean, you were there, Cheryl. So you know what what happened with... Brutal. Yeah, absolutely brutal. And the standards that, that I was held to are not applied to other people.
0: No, and particularly to men. No,
2: not at all to men.
0: You know, sometimes when I think of what some of those morning breakfast crap show hosts talk about, I just think, are you joking that you can get away with saying that? Anyway, so I want to go right back and I want uh, talk about how you got here because you know what I did realize and um, because we never got time to talk when I st- when I was sitting on that panel, do you know that was the first time I'd ever done television and I think Chrissy once said to me, you need to look at the camera. I mean I had no idea. What to- <laughs> And I was like, "Okay, thank you." Because my this sister feedback. <laughs> great feedback, great tip. And my sister said to me after the first, um, the first one I did, she said it looked like you were watching the tennis. That I was just looking from side to side. I had no idea. But anyway, it was great fun, and I loved it so much. But I, I realized when I was preparing for this podcast that I really didn't know all that much about you. So talk to me about where you grew up and how you came to be the gorgeous Yumi Steins.
2: Oh. Oh, well, I was always born newbie, Steins. My parents um, met in Japan, so my dad's a white guy. My mum is born and bred Tokyo local, and my dad, being a white guy, wanted to get his black belt in judo and karate. And back then in the 60s, you couldn't get a black belt. There was no no one um, senior enough to qualify you in Australia, so he had to mission over to Japan to do it. And he was quite a traveller, so he was happy to do that, and he used to walk past my mum's house. And they got, you know, they fell in love. That would have been a bit risque at the time for a Japanese, yeah. Yeah, and I think I can still see that in my mum. Is that she? um, She doesn't care too much about what people think about her, and she's she's a very merry and happy person. So she just kind of merrily went her own way she was also the youngest of six kids from a very traditional um, Japanese family her father and two brothers were priests Buddhist priests in the Shinto uh-huh. religion but I think that being the sixth child the youngest of six she kind of had permission because you know like a lot of parents will say by the time they get to the youngest they've stopped caring as much <laughs> it's like whatever goes <laughs> yeah and stop. they've stopped trying to control they still care but they they don't try and control every element so the couple that was my parents Um, settled down in a small town called Swan Hill in Victoria, which is sort of between Bendigo and Mildura, if you know that area. Really flat Mallee landscapes with lots of farmers and, and my family. So that's where I spent the first sort of 14 years of my life. Um, And then I went to Melbourne to school. um, I want to go back. I want to go back to those 14 years.
0: How Mm. accepting, like what was school challenging for you? Did you, like, I'm going back to my own memory because I grew up in Glebe, which was very, very white and very, very poor. And I used to go to school with a fair, like, uh, my sandwich was Lebanese bread with you know whatever was going at the time for Level. And I was embarrassed, I think, every single day. I just wanted a white bread peanut butter sandwich. You know, I, <laughs> that's what I wanted. And also I feel that pain, yes. Yeah, and I wanted a machine knitted cardigan because my mother was a knitter, and every year, now I would die for that now, but back then, every year, every winter I would rock up with a brand new cable. You know, knitted maroon cardigan. I'm just like, can't I just have one like the other girls in the class?
2: From Kmart, mum. <laughs> so, did you have the same experience? We definitely did, and um, and it was stuff like the lunchbox being sneered at. I, I think I had oenigiti, which is like you know the yeah, roots rice balls and sembear crackers, which are really. Mainstream now, um, but they gave off a smell, and people would be like, "What the heck is that smell?" and and be really judgmental and askance, you know, at what you had in your lunchbox. But it was it was much more than that for for our little family because we were so clearly visibly different. And there weren't Asians in Swan Hill at the time. There was one family that I didn't know that ran the Chinese food shop. They went to a different school. I never saw them, never socialised with them. But if you wanted to say, like, who were the Steins kids? We were the only Asian kids. We were very easy to pick in a lineup of the kids. But that said, you know, the the school itself is pretty diverse, and I think that if you really examine country schools, they often do have a lot of inclusivity, lots of indigenous kids, lots of kids who are freshly migrated from, from elsewhere. Lots of um a mixture and a mingling of rich and poor, mm. which I don't think you necessarily see in big city schools. It's it's rich or poor, but not mm. both. Yeah. In I think essence, if you had to distill it, my parents were great ambassadors. So they were very engaged with the community. Uh, My mum is very gregarious then and now, and so she just made friends. So where people might have been standoffish if we'd have been a standoffish family, they very much embraced my mum and as a consequence embraced us as well. So, yeah, there were still still barriers and microaggressions. There was always the assumption that we wanted to be white, that we would sort of aspire to eventually settle into whiteness, you know, Mm -hmm. white assimilation, which is essentially, I think, a way of saying letting go of your weird habits and your weird culture and being more like us, you know, which was always done with the best of intentions but a fair bit of ignorance as well. Mm. But among all that, I think we thrived. I think I've talked
0: about this on the podcast. In my primary school days I wanted to be called Belinda and I was wished every morning that I woke up that my hair was straight and then maybe a bit lighter, you know, (laughs) I wish for all of that. But then there came a time when I hit high school that I discovered that I was actually way more powerful and way more comfortable in my own skin. But that was a moment, you know, that was a moment for me. Did you have that?
2: Yeah, it's called late onset ethnicity, Cheryl. Yes, that's exactly (laughs) what I had. (laughs) A lot of my Asian friends have reported the same thing. It's like a a childhood shunning this... this background and then a sudden kind of embracing of it when you realise actually this is really cool. This is actually a whole world of a spirituality woven through the tapestry of your life that you got from your parents' culture that maybe others didn't and you kind of start to really appreciate it and that's a it's a wonderful thing. It also comes from so many other um, cultural facets like food, for instance, when I was about... 20 or 18, Japanese food kind of suddenly went through a real boom in Australia and it became very cool. And people would come to my house like jonesing for sushi and hoping I would make them some. You know, it's like, I don't make sushi at home, guys. (laughs) This is for master chefs. I don't do that. But, you know, there there was a way to kind of suddenly reframe your thinking about something that previously had been quite shameful. And the shame I don't know if it was particular to living in the country or just Australia, you know, in the '80s. But there were people whose grandparents and parents remembered the Second World War in a mm. in a very personal way. Mm. So, say when the last post played on the 11th of the 11th, people would turn and look at me accusingly mm. um, if anybody ever talked about the war. Um, Even the Vietnam War, that was me. That was me fighting in the jungle, you know, according to my classmates who weren't deliberately trying to be horrible to me. And it was a lot of it was beyond my comprehension. But you did have this feeling like somehow people that associate are associated with me, either just through appearance or um, history, um, have done something bad to the, mm. to the ancestors of the people that I really need to be friends with.
0: I had that experience after 9-11. So to be an Arab in Australia or well in Sydney became, it, it was difficult. I remember being at a dinner in Surrey Hills and these two women said to me, how does it feel that your people are killing other people? And here I was, a Lebanese Australian in Sydney, like so far removed from that. And then I'm having to defend it. I was so, perception changed. And, you know, after that, every time there was a terrorist attack, I was so fearful that that person might have been Lebanese or that, you know, I was really fearful of of that. So, yeah, I got a bit of that as well. So tell me then, so how did your trajectory, did you growing up,
2: what did you think you wanted to be? Do you know what? When I was a little girl, there was still a hangover from the 70s and people for real used to say to little girls, do you want to be a teacher or a nurse? Oh, God. They used to say that as though we had two options. And I remember thinking, I don't want to be either of those. Things no diss on those professions, but that they're not for me. And just the idea that I had some more options than that was actually completely baffling to the older generation that I grew up around. So back then I do remember saying though, Cheryl, that I wanted to be an author.
0: Yeah, wow.
2: And then That idea, I think I stepped out of it as though there were were a pair of overalls that were too ridiculous for me to wear because I really thought that being an author was being almost like a goddess, like, you know, there was something that authors had that was quite magical, but also aspirational and unattainable and that I would never be that person. So I sort of shelved that idea for, I reckon, a good 15, 20 years. So did you, after you left school, what did you do? So after I left school, I went to uni. I went to Monash. Yeah, um, yeah. and studied. Um, what? I did an, a BA actually in World War Two history because I really. Ah, was there going. you go. <laughs> what, what exactly am I meant to be apologising? <laughs> it was a really interesting degree to do, and I did visual arts as well. So I've always been a massive fan of of fine art. Yeah. Um, that whole time though, I was volunteering at the. Monash Uni radio station, which had a broadcast radius of five kilometres. So within five k <laughs> of the university, you could tune in to the yeah. station, but no further. But that, I mean, I think that that's a, that makes me laugh because I often think what people do in the sidelines of their degrees is often what they end up doing for real and I loved broadcasting. I love being on the radio. I love being able to play music. And um, I just thought, again, that's an unattainable profession. It's a fun thing you might be able to do as a, on a volunteer basis, but you could never actually be paid for it. Um, and then I went away um, hitchhiking, actually. I, I had a brain fart, I guess is sometimes called, it could be like a minor mental breakdown, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was it was when I finished uni and I'd sort of, I'd done the straight from school to uni track. And I think that's, it gives you a sense of purpose that might otherwise completely be missing. The problem is the minute you finish uni, your purposelessness just returns, but but far more frightening in a far more frightening way, because everybody's like, well, you're finished now. Now what, what are you, what are you going to do? What are you going to be? And it's, um, it's actually very hard to answer, I think, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so in among that kind of panic and that existential questioning, I had a um, ticket to the Blues Fest in Byron with a bunch of friends. We all went up um, in a van and smoked bongs in the back of the car and ate cookies <laughs> and just, you know, made wreckage of our bodies. And at the end of the weekend, they all got in the van to drive back to Melbourne. And I just said, you know what, I don't think I'm going to come. Um, so I'd, I'd planned to be away for a weekend, but I ended up staying away for a good year or so. In Byron? No. So I just sort of set my sights on hitchhiking as far north as I could. Um, oh, wow. And so I'd just go for little, you know, short patches, maybe 100 Ks here and then stop for a couple of days and By so yourself? On. Yeah, by myself. Occasionally, I'd, I'd meet up with a friend, and they'd come for a leg of the journey. But mostly, I was I was by myself. That's so adventurous. Yeah, how old mama, you? Can you imagine how much my mum hated that? Oh God! And
0: all by <laughs> yourself? Yeah, yeah.
2: I'm worried already. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because, um, really, I never felt like I was putting my life at risk. It was more, I was just having fun. And that, I think that idea that you can just get in the car or, and eventually I didn't get in cars. I got in only in trucks because these people were not sleazy at all. And they, they were very strict about say not drinking while driving and they'd go great, great distances in one go. So I used to just hitchhike trucks and, um, and felt very safe, but The the roulette of not knowing where they were going and just being completely at the mercy of whatever car was coming or whatever truck would stop to pull over for you was very exciting to me.
1: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands.
2: Yeah, but intro, I mean, that's talking it up a bit because, in truth, when you're going um, on the East Coast highways, there's, you're really going north or south. There's, there's not yeah. a huge variation of where, where you could duck off to. But, of course, you did duck off, and I stopped in um, places like Cairns and I worked as a chef at Undara Lava Lodge for a couple of months and, you know, I'd stop here and there and, and, and take time. And, you know, Do you know what
0: I'm in awe of? Not the actual hitchhiking. Is the fact that you did it on your own so confidently?
2: Well, how old were you? About twenty-three, I reckon. See,
0: I couldn't have lived without my friends at the time. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't think I had the confidence as me as a person to do something like that. That requires a lot of inner strength.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure if it does. I think I'm just one of those people that quite likes to be alone for a lot of the time. And being alone and being lonely are two different things. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I was pretty um, self-possessed. But I basically got all the way as far as the very tip of Australia on the, the right side, which is a town called Bamaga. And then I kept going across the Torres Strait to Thursday Island, and that's where I stopped and I got a, um, a job at the local radio station there. And I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. I, I would not get this opportunity for paid work in broadcasting in Melbourne. So I'm going to really try and make the most of this while I can. And that was a really, like a really great experience to be paid for do, doing what I used to volunteer to do at, at my university. So I think that's kind of what set me on the right path to end up working in broadcasting.
0: Yeah. And how long were you there? Not mom. long, like
2: less than a year, maybe nine or ten months. And then I did get homesick and I wanted to see my mum and be, be integrated in, in Melbourne. And I think what I really, really wanted to do was take the opportunities that are available in a city like Melbourne. Mm-hmm. So Thursday Island, Cairns, all those sort of stops that I made along the way, I would, I would miss the opportunities for for culture. Mm. that you have for um, education, for just experiencing things um, from other cultures that you can get in a a city the size of Melbourne. So the minute I got back to Melbourne, I started volunteering at Open Channel, The, the free TV channel in Melbourne, which is not Open Channel. I've totally forgot the name of it. So tell me about your first paid gig. Like when do
0: you think your career kind of kicked off?
2: Well it didn't kick off until Channel B really. So Channel V was my first paid job. I got it in the year 2000. And that was where I'd seen an ad in the Melbourne Street Papers called Impress and Beat Magazine that you used to get for free at venues mm-hmm. and stuff. Are you hot? Are you blonde? Do you are you sexy or something like that? Did they really um, say that? Are you blonde? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was the whole thing was like, we don't want you. But oh, I, didn't, okay. I didn't read to that line. My my good friend, Michelle had read to that line and she said, you need to, you need to look at this. You need to audition for this. And I saw these top lines and went, what, what why are you showing me this nonsense? And then it was like, the next lines were, we don't want you. We want somebody who loves music, who's passionate, somebody who really cares about culture. It's not about you know being a a bimbo basically and so I thought well maybe that is a job that I could do and it was the early days you know of reality TV I think Sylvania Waters existed but nothing where they do cattle crawl auditions and that makes the show kind of thing nothing like that existed at the time in the year 2000 so I kind of pegged this actually could be something I could do I do go to see bands four or five times a week I spent all my money on concert tickets and the CDs I know how to string a sentence together. I've done broadcasting before. Maybe this is something I've got a shot at. And that was a um, one of the rare times as a youngster that I cared and I allowed myself to care, you know, to really put myself on the line to yeah. be vulnerable to disappointment, you know, because I think a lot of that, that early teenage and post teenage time is you're just trying so hard to be cool Mm -hmm. and to actually like go actually this could be so great for me I would this would change my life you know and I would be I would try so hard at that job if I got it so to just kind of like own that and show up at uh, I think I showed up at four or five in the morning to audition because I knew there would be a big queue and if I got there late I might not be even given the chance to audition so just being being willing to be uncool enough to try Mm. that was a big moment for me and brave and brave and I did do it by myself and I did sort of wish that I'd had a friend there standing in line next to me and we're doing it together but at the same time I don't want my friend getting the job I just wanted to be like really sent to myself you know bring my maximum to it and it's not something that you can co you can't co-audition for a solo job like that so it was at the Metro in Melbourne and, um, and they let people in. They numbered each person as you got in and I got number. So six. you didn't make an appointment or anything, excuse my ignorance. No, you, you couldn't have an interview you, time. No, no, you had to just queue up and it was yeah. first in, first served. So I was number 69 in the queue, which I took as a sign <laughs> because I'm very juvenile. So that that was great. and then I went <laughs> It in and, meant something. Um, yeah, yeah, and then I waited and did my audition and that was like, That was a genuinely terrifying experience. And I think having hitchhiked up the east coast of Australia, I sort of understood that doing the scary thing is actually really good for you. Like it's, you know, it's not the worst. So that was my um, foray into tv and content.
0: did you get it how did it work do you get were you told on the spot that you're on a short list or how does
2: how not happens? at all no no so they were doing a tour of the entire country and basically oh, getting wow. a page of different auditionees from every city in Australia and making content out of that so the whole process took months but eventually I was I think it was three or four months later I was told I was shortlisted and I had to leave my job immediately and by that time I'd um I'd completely sort of forgotten and let go of this audition that I'd done and moved to the snow because it was a bumper snow season and I'd always, always had this dream to become a snowboarder, which, is, which I'm still not to this day, but I just thought what a cool sport, you know, I want to be cool. So I'd um, got a job chefing at um, a resort on Mount Buller because I can cook and then, um, and then I, my, my mentality was that I was going to spend every single spare moment of my day snowboarding when I wasn't chefing. But then I got this call saying, you've been shortlisted. Can you come to Sydney in a, in a week or four days or something? And I really thought, look, I might get fired from my job as a chef for leaving with four days' notice, but it's a risk I'm going to have to take. Like, of course I'm coming. Of course I'm going to Sydney. Of course. And I remember, yeah, and I, I think it was, I had my first ever mobile phone and I was standing literally in the snow and they were saying, hey, listen, and when you come to Sydney, we've got, I think, eight other finalists and they all get to interview somebody and when you get here you'll be interviewing Robbie Williams oh my god (laughs) even I know who that is
1: (laughs) (laughs) so I had a few days
2: to think about you know okay that's going to be one of the things that I do when I get to Sydney is um, being on the spot being auditioned sort of at at length and as part of that one of those people will be uh, one of those tasks will be to sit and interview Robbie Williams so I sort of dropped everything and, and flew to Sydney and um, was suddenly part of this big circus because they'd been running footage of these auditionees for months, narrowing down the good the good ones and then kind of having this, these eight final people um, to make a big fuss over. So we yeah. kind of walked into this whole lights, live TV, everybody knowing who we are, this whole scene that we really um, were quite unprepared for and it was a week of the eight of us being set tasks to, say, host a request show or um, shoot a story about your culture um, and do a celebrity interview. So there was a lot of build-up to this big celebrity interview that I was going to do. One, I mean, one of the other finalists got to do um, Destiny's Child. Wow. And those guys, so that was, that was amazing as well. But Robbie Williams was going to be live in the studio, a live studio audience, the whole crew, live mics, you know, the whole thing. It was very much a deep end situation. Yeah. I'm gonna chuck her in the deep end and see what she can do. Learning uh, on the job, right? Oh, very much, very much. Yeah. And I sort of had thought, even just when I took that phone call in the snow, look, if if you if any woman in Australia could ask Robbie Williams a question, it's my duty to try and ask that question. What would the question be? And I do. I sort of, you know, I thought about all the music nerd questions you could ask, but I thought I would ask if I could kiss Robbie Williams. That's what I would ask him if he will kiss me or I can kiss him. And so, of course, I did prepare and I did the research, but I also put that at the top of my list. So when I met Robbie in the backstage area, I said, "Listen, when we're on on air, I'm going to ask if I can, um, if I can pass you." And he didn't know what passion was because I think it's an Australian. It? And so he turns to his manager, what's passion? And his manager goes, it's snogging, it's snogging. And he's <laughs> like, oh, well, I better go have a mint then. So he goes and sucks <laughs> on a mint. And then, you know, we go out on set and Robbie's in the back, you know, he's, they're waiting to kind of bring him on like a big star. And they, um, they're like, ladies and gentlemen, Robbie Williams. And he walks out and I didn't get to ask, can I kiss you? He just grabbed me and almost did like a ballroom dancing dip and planted this big red open mouth kiss <laughs> on my mouth and everybody in the audience started screaming their heads off, you know, because he's, he was the biggest thing in pop music. Yeah, like yeah, I remember. Yeah, massive. So that was it. I was like, Fuck, yes, I've got the job. I'm <laughs> Like try to top that, bitches. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And I, I think it's something like that. It's how you recover
2: afterwards, how you pull yourself totally going. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, really good point because he's a he, he, very good kisser. I, I did find him attractive. <laughs> the whole thing kind of, I felt like I had stars circling yeah, around my head.
0: Because yeah. I think him. he was single at the time too, wasn't he?
2: Yeah, he was certainly having fun in Sydney. Yes. That's yes. what awesome. I remember yeah. that. But yeah. So it was another week or so while they sort of tallied up who should get the job at Channel B. But I felt like, look, I won't be surprised if I get it because I've nailed that Robbie Williams. Yeah, into. <laughs> yeah. So Channel V was a job that I just loved and I did that for about 10 years. Yeah. Wow.
0: Okay. So tell me how you came, because we've been talking for a while. Um, <laughs> tell me how you came to produce the podcast and then the book. Is it a topic that you felt hadn't been explored? The ladies we need to talk.
2: Yes. Look, I would love to take credit for it, but Claudine Ryan, who's my, my co-writer, she's she's sort of deeply ingrained in the in the culture at the ABC. So yep. she knows yep. what's being made across the board. And she knew from her work that digital uptake, or so so the uptake of audiences engaging with articles about women's health, sexuality was really high but it wasn't very highly represented. So there wasn't much of that kind of content. No. So she came up with the idea of making a podcast that really centred in on, on that and making it for women, all by women, um, and every expert we ever talk to. So if you need a gyno, if you need a birth trauma expert, if you need anybody who knows about breast cancer or any of those things, it's always a woman. So obviously there are men that work in that, in that space, but we always just have women's voices speaking to women um and it just went off Cheryl like it just Mm. it's into its um fifth season we're about to wrap up
0: I think it's because it's candid there's just no holes but it's just it is what it is that's what's so compelling about it
2: yeah and it's it's so true because sometimes when you have those really raw conversations that get to the quite frank stuff where you're like but just let me understand what is going on with say discharge or you know, something that people find pretty icky to talk about. You can be frank with your doctor when the door is closed, but why can't we be frank the rest of the time? And that's really what the podcast aims to do is to just say, well, look, this does happen to a lot of people. So are we that ashamed of it that we're going to pretend that's not happening? And does that help anybody? Of course mm-hmm. it doesn't help. So just sort of cracking it open like an egg and go, let's all look at it. Let's all talk about it. Let's be honest about it. And the bits we don't understand, we're going to get the doctor to come over and explain those bits to us. And it's just been such a breath of fresh air, Cheryl, like Mm. it's quite mind-blowing. An experience that we had with the podcast was talking about a woman who contacted us actually. She has uterus didelphus, which is basically like instead of one vaginal passage, she has two side-by-side and two uteruses um, and an ovary each side. Um, But she was never diagnosed, so she went through pain and um, just confusion for 50 years of her life and then at 64 somebody finally picked it up on the ultrasound and it had shown before 64. but nobody had. yeah so she anyway so we talk about her, her sort of um, journey to finally understanding her own body somebody else is listening to the podcast and is like that's me. So she suddenly has a word for what she suspects she's got. She can take that to the doctor. She can get diagnosed. She feeds all this back to us. So we're listening at the podcast HQ going, oh my goodness, this Mm. is what, this is why we do what we do. Mm. Um, And that's been a, a recurring experience, big cases and small where women finally hear a story that resonates with them, that they thought they were the only ones. They thought it was a shameful thing. They thought they were freaks and they didn't know how to seek a diagnosis. And often you do seek a diagnosis and you don't get one. Mm. You kind of have to manage up. Because
0: I them. would argue that sometimes you can't even tell your doctor. Like I don't think there's sometimes there's not a lot of empathy and some GPs are better than others, you know. Yes. I know. God, I wish yeah. that was around when I was young because, you know, I, I used to take to Dolly in Cosmopolitan to find out yeah. things.
2: Well, Dolly Doctor is one of my co-writers for my other books because ah. she's uh, rock solid and reliable, Dr. Melissa Mm. King.
0: Well, congratulations, Yumi. Honestly, I just, I have always followed your career and watched you grow um, and just be so successful. And I love your energy. I really love it. So thank you so much for speaking with me today.
2: Uh, Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's been wonderful to see your face again.
1: luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.